Well, it's certainly been an incredibly challenging period for Australian football as we continue to navigate through the repercussions of the pandemic. And here to discuss that and so much more, it's a very warm welcome to Football Federation Australia Chief James Johnson. James, great to see you. Thank you, Lucy, and thanks for uh, inviting me on to your, your show, which I have uh, I've watched for many, many years in many different capacities in football. It's great to have your company. Of course, it's an interview that we've been chasing with you for some time, five months to be exact, because of how difficult things have been in Australian football. We understand the nature of that. But before we get to it, I'd also like to welcome along my colleague at SBS, uh, Chief Football Analyst Craig Foster. Great to see you, Foz. Hi, Lucy, and uh, hi to uh, James and, and Graham. Good to see you. Yep, and also, you mentioned there, Graham. we're also delighted to welcome along Australian national team coach Graham Arnold, who we'll be getting to shortly. Arnie, great to see you. Great to see you guys as well. Fantastic. James, we'll start with you, of course. As I mentioned there, it's been such a tough time for Australian football and all the relevant stakeholders uh, involved in the game, but we'd love to hear from you sort of an update on where things are at at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Lucy. Look, it's um, it's my fourth month in the role. Uh, it's it's great to be home after ten years uh, being abroad. Um, it, it's been a what I would describe as a freakish period. Uh, in the first four months, uh, we've got to see the, the the Westfield Matildas and the Oli Roos, of course, qualify for for the Olympics. Um, we've got to move the ball up the field, so to speak, with the Women's World Cup, the twenty three Women's World Cup bid. Um, we've had to put our foot down with the Matildas going up to Wuhan. Uh, that was back in in, in, in January. Um, and, and then we, of course, had to take on the qualification matches for the Olympics for the women's uh, national teams for, for our group uh, in, in, in Asia. Um, and then we've been hit by this COVID-19 uh, tidal wave, which has effectively meant we've had to stop the, the, the game. Um, at the professional level with the A-League, at the amateur and semi-professional level, uh, and, and, and also with, with our national teams. And this has caused some, um, some financial difficulties for the game because the game is, is, is we're in the business of football and football's not being played at the moment. Um, but we've had to, uh, as a consequence, make some difficult operational decisions in, in, in the first four months. Um, so the way I would sum it up is it's been probably different to how I uh, imagined the first four months would be, but I am uh, optimistic and excited about uh, what lies ahead as we exit the COVID-19 period. What's been your assessment of where the game is at? Because, of course, for so many of us, we're wondering now, I mean, even prior to the pandemic, we'd identified that there were some serious issues with Australian football, but I feel like the pandemic outbreak has just highlighted how serious some of those are and how urgent some attention is, is needed in those areas. But what have you outlined as some of the immediate priorities for you to work through? Well, I think, I think there's been a lot said um, since I've been back uh, and even before I got back about the state of the game, um, whether you listen to people in media like, like yourselves, uh, former players, current players, coaches, or the institutions of the game, so the member federations, the, the A-League clubs, the PFA, the Women's Football Council, um, everyone's, everyone's got a view. I think this is good to have a view. I think it's good to, to debate issues. And for me, uh, coming into this role, it's given me the ability to to really listen to what's important to different parts of the game. I think that that will put us in a position where we can react to what's important to our um, our, our, our different constituents. Um, for me personally, uh, some I mean, there's a whole range of issues that we could talk about, but uh, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is the domestic football economy. Um, I think that 
uh, a mechanism that we don't have in the sport, um, that we don't have in our code, and, and that is quite common in different parts of the world, is a domestic transfer system. Um, if you look at the FIFA uh, Global Transfer Market Report in 2019, the aggregate amount of transfer fees that we've received as a country is, is less than $2 million. Um, and that's about a 62% decrease from 2018. So we're actually going, we're starting at a low amount and we're actually going backwards. Um, if you were to compare this to say countries now, our, our region such as uh, Japan or Korea, they're gener generally uh, um, um, receiving around a $30 million mark per year. And if you to contrast it with the top football development countries such as a Belgium, they're at about 300 million dollars. So I would say um, when it comes to the, 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 the market, I think we're un underperforming in the international transfer market. But I see this as an, as an opportunity for us to establish one. And I think it's a way that we can diversify our revenue streams going, going forward. So this would be the first point. Um, are you happy for me to keep, keep going? Okay. Um, an, another one for me is, is the product. Um, I think that our, our league, if you look at it, it's, um, I'm talking about the A-League here. Um, it, it, the, the product is, is quite old. So if you look at the match, per, the, the match minutes that are played for each age group, um, it's actually the age group of 32 that has played the most matches um, in the past five seasons of the A-League. So again, if you link that with the transfer system, um, what we're seeing in the A-League is we're seeing an, an, an older league, um, a, a league where uh, the majority of minutes are being played by older players. And I think from a development standpoint, and also from a commercial standpoint, that's something that we could probably look um, as an opportunity to, to involve. Um, I, I also think the, 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 the player pathways is something that we, we really need to have a look at. And this obviously um, would, would benefit both our national teams, but I think it would also benefit our, our league as well. Um, if you look at um, what I would call the holy grail approach, if you look at uh, clubs like Liverpool um, or clubs like Sporting Lisbon or Ajax, they're, they're, they're all able to play players that have been produced um, by the clubs. And, and I think that that's something we've not taken advantage of in Australia. And that's probably hurt us a little bit uh, in, in, in terms of the attachment between the player and the club, the attachment between the, the player club and also the, the, the fan. Um, and I think this is an area that we should be looking at uh, improving going forward. Um, that, that would be uh, my assessment. I think if we move away from, from, from football and we look at government, you talked about um, government relations uh, before the show. Um, our government funding at the moment, for the last year anyway, was, was about three and a half million. And that's quite off the, the mark if we look at other codes in Australia, such as swimming. Um, which, which are generating about $14 million from the government hockey, which is about 8.8 .8 million basketball, 8.5 million. So I think this is another area that we, we, we really need to look at um, how we can uh, have better relations with government and also benefit um, through, through, through better uh, uh, government distributions. Um, I think women's football is another area. I think we actually do very well in, in, in women's football if, if you measure us uh, based on, on the amount of women we have in football, but also uh, other measures such as our women's national team, um, who are performing very well on the international level. We do very well as a football nation, but we're still seeing only 
22% uh, of our registered players um, be, be, be women. So I think this is a, a big opportunity, but it's a, an area that I think we, we, we can focus on and we probably need to focus on going forward. Cost of football is another. Um, if you benchmark us internationally against uh, countries all over the world, we're, we're one of the highest countries in terms of the cost of playing football. Um, and, and once we cross that point of it becoming a barrier for entry, uh, I think we have problems. So I think these are some of the, the areas that are certainly uh, of, of concern to me. And um, uh, my, my team here are looking at these at the moment, um, trying to analyze them, diagnose them properly so that we can put uh, good, effective and, and, and practical solutions on the table to solve them. Many of those, James, that, that you mentioned, and thanks for that. Um, if we might just try and drill down into a couple of them then and see exactly where they're sitting. So, you know, you talked about the football economy. Where is that at currently? You know, you're talking, of course, about the possibility of international player sales and youth development is, is, is clearly a, a, big, a big issue that's front of mind for a lot of people in the game right now. We'll talk to Graeme a little bit about that afterwards. Uh, where's the financial economy at right now? Clearly it's been affected by COVID, yes, but there's been a lot of media reports as well around sponsorships, around commercial partnerships, whether they're finishing, you know, like Hyundai and others. Of course, you've got the Fox Sports and Broadcast deal. Football's not alone in this. You know, all of the sports are hurting and broadcast being really central to that. Where uh, precisely is the financial well-being viability of the game right now? Yes, it's a good question, fellas. So um, it, it's, it's in a difficult period. And this is the, this is the reality. Um, I think if you look at business in Australia, business across the world, if you look at the football business or the sporting business in Australia and also the football business across the world, uh, we're, we're really in, 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 in uh, the, the, I think everyone's going through a difficult period at the moment. If we drill down a little bit on, on where Australia's at, um, the way that our uh, revenues in the game are generated largely at the professional level, and I'll come back to the other levels, um, are through the broadcast are through broadcasting. Um, now, I think the opportunity for us as a game is we really need to diversify um, the way in which our revenues are generated. Um, so we're not solely reliant on, on broadcast. I think the transfer system is, is a good one. Um, and it's a way that we can, we can generate high amounts of money. I think the digitalization of the game at the right time is also a space that we could get in. Um, potentially in the future, uh, setting ourselves up to produce our own content. This is, this is another way that we could potentially, um, uh, I think, generate revenues uh, going forward. But I think the main point is we're, we're in a period that is, is going to be uh, and continue to be uncertain for some time. But, but my message and certainly where I think we need to look is how do we actually diversify um, so that we can limit the risk and, and increase the opportunity. And what's, uh, so let's talk about just this division of responsibilities then when it, when it comes, you know, financial is just one aspect, but it's an important one. Um, I think, uh, you know, many in the football community are kind of unclear now as to, you know, where that division lies. You know, where are the boundaries between the professional game and, you know, the governing body? We saw the issues regarding Fox Sports. Of course, that's a, a bundled, uh, you know, broadcast rights agreement. But there's, you know, there's issues between players and the clubs and so on. And, and the professional game, uh, you know, wanted to become independent and autonomous, but that hasn't occurred. So you've walked into this role now and after four months. What can you tell people exactly what you have particular responsibility for? 
So, so look, the, the, there's, a, there's a principal agreement in place that the league would become independent uh, of, of the FFA. Now, um, if we look at 211 countries around the world, there's about 70 different countries that are uh, professional football. Um, now, the relations between the association and the league in each of these 70 countries, they all look very different. So the, the, the model that has been looked at um, previously is, 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 for lack of a better word, it's very focused on the Premier League model and how the Premier League's relationship with the FA works um, in, in, in the UK. And this is, of course, one model. This is one model. Um, right now, today, league, the legal responsibility of the league is with, with the FFA, but because we have an in-principle agreement to unbundle, that's the word I like to use, and I'll come back to that, um, we've had to work very closely with the club. So, so any uh, decisions on the league, although they're legally taken by FFA, they're taken in uh, close consultation with the A-League ownership. Uh, and, and that relationship is actually working very well. Uh, there's, I think there's a good level of respect. Uh, there might have been issues in the past, but this is, this is something of the past. Um, now, how we structure that going forward, my, my personal view is that we need to look at the environment that we're in, the new environment the environment that we're going to be in COVID, uh, post-COVID-19, and perhaps the model that we thought we were going to have isn't the model in a post-COVID-19 world. Um, now, how that looks, um, you know, we could put 70 different models on the table, but I think the, the, the points for me that are important, I think we need to give the owners uh, uh, much more commercial autonomy than what they have had in the past. You almost want your uh, league, in my view, to be the engine, the commercial engine for the game. And then you allow a separation of powers and your government, your, your FFA, um, becomes a government that can hold to account the, the, the private sector, if you like. Now, how that's structured corporately, whether we have a company or a subsidiary, um, and, and which decisions are taken in either or, um, I think that's a technical discussion. But I think the direction that we go in the future will be to bundle but it's just a matter of putting the formalities um, uh, in, in, into place that, that don't exist uh, at the moment. Can I ask you, James, what your relationship is like with the club owners, truthfully? I mean, you've said there that it's, it's a good relationship, that you've created some good dialogue, but, you know, my understanding is I'm hearing, particularly when it comes to the resumption of the competition, that there are some differing views. There are at least two to three clubs, I'm told, that don't want to restart the A-League. They're happy to just cancel it because of economic reasons, which in one respect you can understand. But, you know, when you are dealing with the owners, is there a unified voice? Is there somebody that you're dealing with consistently that's coming to you uh, and saying, well, this is the consensus of the collective, or are you finding that it is challenging to get everybody on the same page? I think, I think in any, as a general comment, in any uh, stakeholder relations, and I talked in my time at, at, at FIFA where I was head of professional football and I had to deal with the, the, the big European clubs, it is difficult sometimes to, to bring people together uh, and align them on decisions. Um, but it's, it's certainly not impossible, particularly in the case of Australia, um, there's really, there's no decision that I can think of since I've been here that, that, that we've been at odds with the clubs on. Um, we do have to work through a specific date that will restart the competition. All the clubs are on board to restart the competition. It's just a matter of, of when. Um, and there's, there's different issues at stake. You know, we've got some clubs who have uh, players and coaches who are abroad at the moment. Can we get them back into the country um, in time for a July start? maybe, um, or, or, or do we need that extra four weeks to, to allow them to get those players back in? So 
this is the level of detail where there's sometimes uh, um, discussion that happens, but I think in the end, and I don't think that's too far away, I think in the next one to two weeks, we're going to be in a position where we have a fully aligned position between FFA and the clubs on, on, on what it will be to restart the league. We're pretty close now. Um, we've given ourselves a, a window of, of three months. So we'd like to give the players within that three months uh, a month or, or there or thereabouts of, of training. And then we think we need another month to complete the season. So we're talking about a three-month window to fit that eight weeks of football um, activity in. So to, we actually don't have much much leeway um, and, and we're really down to discussing when the actual date will start. Uh, and, and, and I think we will be aligned when we make that decision. When it comes to the broadcast arrangement, obviously there was a lot of conjecture around, will they, won't they, when it came to the final instalment being paid by Fox Sports? The payment did come through, but as we understand it now, within the football fraternity, the payment has not been dispersed amongst the, the 11 A-League clubs. What's the situation there? And, and what can we expect post this season concluding uh, with the relationship with Fox? Do they have intentions of carrying out the remainder of their agreement? Or as we understand it, could they walk away at any given moment if things and terms aren't met? Yeah, there, there, there's some commercial points there that I, I, I can't go into in detail, but I'll say as a general comment that um, I wouldn't have come back to Australia if I wasn't uh, optimistic about where we go going forward. Um, I think at the moment, what we're looking at, we're working with the clubs and we're, we're talking to the players. We're really looking at what distribution we can make to the clubs uh, that would ultimately be paid to the players. It'll be a negotiation. We're in those negotiations at the moment. Um, I think we'll get an agreement. Um, the, the one upside for us, if we compare ourselves to say the NRL or the AFL, is that we're at the back end of the season whereas the AFL and the NRL were at the start of the season. So if we look at um, what we need to do to, to finish the season, we're, we're really only looking at a two-month period. Um, and I think that that means the negotiations with the clubs and with the players uh, will go along a lot quicker than probably the AFL and the NRL, simply because they have the whole season to, to negotiate. I don't see there being any any issues. There, there will be issues we have to iron out, but this is just uh, these are, these are normal um, negotiations with, with clubs and also negotiations, CBA negotiations with the players. I don't think there are, um, I, 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 I think we'll have an agreement pretty soon. Just on that with the players and, and the clubs, James, um, you know, the last couple of years have been really difficult. There's been a lot of conflict. You know, of course, it was, you know, reform of, of the Congress and the Constitution, which is always problematic, but it was particularly acrimonious at times. You've come in now and have four months. Can you give us a characterisation of where the game sits, if you like, in the political sense? You know, people talk about unity and unification and these things. And the reason I ask that question now off the back of what you said is because the clubs did stand down the players which, you know, um, most other sports were able to avoid uh, and certainly wasn't a good look for the game if we're talking about all of the different stakeholders working together to not only get through COVID, but, you know, towards a long-term vision of the game. So where does that sit in your assessment? The, the, the political relations in, in general are in a, in a, in a pretty good state, I, I would say. Um, I, I think that in terms of decision-making, we've, we've been able to uh, broadly reach... Uh, consensus on, on on most decisions that have taken place in in four months. We are in a pandemic, though, so there are some there are going to be decisions that that are not good for any of us uh, in in football. 
there was a, a one-week period where the, the the PFA and the clubs were um, they were they were fighting. It was around the time of the standouts. Um, I didn't participate in that negotiation directly. It was dealt with directly by the clubs, the ownership, the employers, and the employees. And and I think that the 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 noise um, stopped. So I think they're again broadly aligned with 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 the, the, the situation now. And I think where the focus is on those negotiations is how we, we complete the rest of the season. Um, I have spoke directly with the players, the delegates uh, through the PFA, and I've asked them what is important to them. And the message that I've got is that they want to resume the, the game as soon as possible. They want to re resume the season um, as soon as possible. So really what we're trying to do at the moment is look at it practically. We're trying to find out uh, or work out what we can pay to the clubs and what the clubs can pay to the players. And this is all part of the discussion at the moment. But we're all aligned. We want to restart the, the A-League as soon as possible. What about when you extend it to, say, the National Premier League and the relationship with uh, the member federations? Of course, it's been a hotly discussed topic, certainly amongst ourselves. You know, myself and Foz personally have always advocated for a unitary model, but uh, there seems to be a lot of red tape and politics in Australian football, James, and I think that you'd be in a position to agree with that even in your short period of time here. In And, and especially when it comes to the technical director at Football Federation Australia, Rob Sherman. I mean, I spoke to him. He was in the job for nine months, and when I interviewed interviewed him, he said, you know, I was there and felt like I achieved nothing in that period because I kept continuously coming against, uh, up against opposition and dealing with the member fed who just could not agree. Where do you sit on your views when it comes to a unitary model? And is this something that we could potentially achieve in Australian football? Um, you're, you're talking about the role of the, the member federations and the relationship with, with FFA, Lucy, and uh, look, this has been a hot topic lately. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. I've been, been listening. Um, if the question is, do we abolish the member federations? Uh, I, my answer is no. Um, do, do the member federations have a important role to play in Australian football? I say yes. Um, do we need to modernise the way that the structures work and the relationships? I also say yes. Um, I think there's been, uh, as I said, there has been a lot of debate. Um, I, I think we need to, 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 to look at some of the problems, and I'll come back to that, but we also should remember what, what's good about the structure. And, and one aspect that I think anecdotally um, is, is, is a positive is having that relationship between grassroots participants and the zones or the, the member federations, depending on which state you're, you're working in. It, it probably has resulted in, in our ability to drive the number of grassroots participants up. Um, so we do need to remember that we have 2 million participants and I think that the member federations and the zones, um, having that close relationship to grassroots um, has probably contributed to that. Um, having said that, can we become uh, more aligned through one strategy? Can we become more aligned through our, our operational efficiency to, to enhance our activities? Um, I think yes, we can. Um, can we be more uh, accountable to our participants as a governing body? I think we can. Um, can we reduce our operational costs around the countries? I think we can. Um, I, I guess the point I'm getting at is I think, in, in my view, I think the member federations uh, will continue to play a meaningful role uh, in the way that the game is governed and developed. 
But like all parts of the game at the moment, particularly in this COVID and as we go into this post-COVID era, um, I think we've all got to look at how we can actually improve um, uh, the, the, the structures in a post-COVID environment. Um, I've started a discussion with, with member feds uh, around this, and I do think there is an appetite um, to, to do things differently. And I think the member federations will actually support us. So some people often say that in a crisis, there is also opportunity. And we have to acknowledge that people during COVID-19, a lot of people have been really badly affected, of course. Uh, is this what you're talking about? So, you know, there are some, some huge challenges for the game, James, but also, you know, let me frame it this way then. Um, what are the opportunities that you see coming out of this? And I'm assuming that one of those is a, is a better rationalisation of the resources expended by the game nationally, particularly in a financial situation that we have presently. Yeah, I think I think that's that's right, Foz. But that that's that's one area. Um, I, I think what we need to do as a sport is we need to develop um, a vision for the sport. I think this is a good opportunity to to do this. Uh, and a vision to me, it's 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 not pie in the sky stuff. It's uh, it's something that's difficult to achieve, but but it sets a direction that we can we can move into. Um, I think the vision, though, needs to be a collective vision. It's, it's no point me just saying, this is my vision, everyone follow it. Um, it's got to be a vision that, that, that the institutions of Australian football buy into, but also key people um, like yourselves buy into. Um, for me, I, I, I think, and I'll give you some, some thoughts around this, if I had a crystal ball and looked forward to where we could be in 15, 20 years' time, um, realistically, um, I think that first of all, we should be looking to uh, for the Matildas to win a medal at international level, whether that be the Olympics or the World Cup. Um, I think that the Socceroos, we, we want to be a top 20 uh, football nation if we measure it on the FIFA um, uh, rankings. I think our junior national teams need to regularly uh, qualify for the World Cups. We know we can achieve this because we have done this before. Um, I think if we look at the league, we, we really want to uh, be a league that has this holy grail uh, effect where we have homegrown players like the Liverpools or the Sporting Lisbons, the uh, Dynamo uh, Zagrebs or the Ajaxes. Um, and I think we can, we, we can do this because the, the nations that are developing these players, they're nations that have smaller populations than us and also we have bigger uh, uh, populations than they do. Um, I think we need to be a producer of talent. For me, this is important. I think part of our identity as a football nation um, should be to be a producer of talent. That, for me, is very uh, important. And again, I think that's something we can we can certainly achieve. I think for our A-League and our W-League, we've, we've got to be in the top three in Asia. Again, I think this is certainly uh, achievable and we have to be there year in, year out. Um, I would like to see a second-tier competition as well. I think this is also achievable. 75% of countries uh, around the world are able to achieve this, so why can't we? Um, I've talked about a transfer system, but I think that, again, if we look forward 15 to 20 years, could we be a top 10 nation in terms of transfer revenues in? I think we can. I think we can. And then if we go back to the governance um, of, of the sport, which is where you, your question started from, um, I think we do need to make changes that can align on strategy and also operations so we're more efficient. Being more efficient with our costs, I think, can drive the 
um, the, the registration fees and the affordability of, of football goes, goes south. Um, I think it allows us to be more diverse as a community. Um, I think it allows us to invest in areas like coach education. And if we can have one of the highest um, uh, coach qualification versus per capita ratios around the world, again, I think that's, that's, that, that's achievable. Um, so for me personally, that's where I think we could get to, but it's not just my thoughts that are important. This is something that over the next couple of months, we're going to start testing with, uh, with our football community. What's the marketplace been like in response to generating further sponsorships and revenue for the game? Um, I note that you'd said, you know, obviously our existing relationship with government needs some serious work. And that's something that we within the football community have acknowledged for some time now. I mean, $3 million in funding is next to nothing when you stack it up to the other codes in the country. But the loss of sponsors like Caltex, NAB, uh, Aldi, and more recently Hyundai are very difficult to digest. But what's the, the, the temperature like in the marketplace, do you feel? Have you started to have any initial conversations with other potential revenue generators? Yeah, we have. And uh, I, I, you know, I want to be very upfront and, and open on this. It is going to be a difficult market uh, going, going forward. Uh, and again, this is going to be an issue that affects uh, business all around the world, but, but football all around the world as well. Um, I think our specific cases, though, we, we have a lot to look forward to. We have a lot to offer. Uh, in, in my view. Um, right now, we've got the remainder of the A-League season to complete. I think this is something that we can be excited about, but also commercial partners can be excited about. Next year, we'll have a 12-team uh, A-League for the 2021 season. So this is, again, a new team with MacArthur coming in. This will be another, excuse me, exciting um, uh, proposition for commercial partners. We have the uh, Socceroos, who once they get started again, probably at the back end of this calendar year or early next year, um, they're, they're getting into the, uh, the nitty-gritty um, point of the qualification process for the 22 uh, World Cup in Qatar, and they, they have a good chance. They're doing very early, and the team is doing fantastic at the moment. That's something that is exciting and also something that partners, I think, well, I don't just think, I know are, are interested in. We've got two teams going to the Olympics next year in Tokyo. First time we've had this since 2004 in Athens. And to top it all, all off, we have the, the Women's World Cup 23 bid. Um, we're in the semi-finals of this bid. Uh, the announcement's going to be made June 25. So I think there's plenty of stuff that, that's exciting. And that's not even to, to, uh, to mention our, our, our base, which is our participants, and the fact that we're this local but global sport. So I think... I think there's a lot we can we can do, and, uh, and 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 to answer your question, yes, there is interest in the market, and uh, I, I I'm I'm sure we'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks um, some some good news in this respect. James, I want to move on now to ask you about another hot topic at the moment in the Australian football community, and that is none other than the National Second Division. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where that's at. From my understanding, I know that the steering committee was formed in August of last year. This, of course, predates your time with the organisation, but then as early as March this year, they wanted to push out a blueprint to sort of test the marketplace and find out what the appetite was like for a National Second Division. Can you give us an update on where things are at? And indeed, if because because of the pandemic, you'll still be able to meet the 2021-2022 um, establishment date. Yeah, thanks, Lucy. Um, look, as to when uh, the, the second tier would, would come in, uh, I, I don't want to say this at the moment because I think we have to look at um, a lot of 
issues that are on the table uh, at the moment and then prioritise. But um, for me, I will say that a second tier is it is a priority. Um, I think it's uh, important for uh, from a football development standpoint to have a second tier competition. Three quarters of the associations around the world um, have second tier competitions. So I don't see why we, 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 we can't have one. Um, Foz said earlier in the show, uh, he, he used the, the term, never let a good crisis go to waste, uh, I think he said. And, and we've tried to do that. So we've got no national team football for um, foreseeable future. And we have a, a great um, football person with good football acumen in, in Graham Arnold. Um, so what I've done is I've asked him to look at some of the is these issues. So the, the, the facts and figures I'm about to give you, I just wanted to make sure that Arnie was, was recognised. Um, but if we look at the, the, the A-League um, and we compare the A-League to the top 35 top tier leagues around the world, what we know is that we're number 34 in, in terms of the minutes that are available for players, right? Number 34 or 35. Um, we also know that 24% and, um, of, of the minutes that are played uh, in the A-League are actually are played for by under 23 players, right? So what that means is we don't have a lot of under 23 players playing regularly uh, in our national competition in Australia. Um, so for me, a solution or a measure that could be implemented to improve uh, those numbers are to implement a second tier division um, where you could have more minutes for players uh, and, and also have a, a strong focus on a uh, a, a, not a youth competition, but a competition that has a lot, a lot of younger players that can develop um, and bridge the, the, the gap between the NPL and the A-League. And I think this is important um, if we want to be considered a football nation going forward. How viable is it? I mean, I know that you've crunched some numbers already uh, and it's obviously something that you still need to drill further into because of the, the, the scale of, of what's needed here. But, but in, in your kind of understanding of where it's at now, is this something that we could realistically push out in a couple of years, James? I think it is. A um, couple of years could be three years, but uh, I, I, I don't see why we, we can't. I mean, some of the challenges that we have in running competitions in Australia is our geographical size, but the way that this is um, been addressed in countries like the United States or, or, or countries like India is, is, is with your schedule. And so you can reduce your operational costs. So in the US, um, the, the leagues tend to have conferences. I mean, this would be one option. So I guess the point is there are ways that we can run a second tier competition that aren't your traditional um, home and away basis, uh, you know, 22 matches, um, uh, we, we, I think there's ways to do it. So the answer is yes. I think that um, we, we, we could have a second tier competition. I'm sure we'll raise this with Graham shortly as well, James. But it, the, the theme around many of these things, and you were talking about, you know, you kind of your own personal feelings about what should occur in 15 years and so on. Now, many of those decisions are going to have to be either led from top down, which would be the usual scenario, or in collaboration with the professional game. For instance, the number of young players who are not getting time. And we've seen a lot of discussions around seven and eight foreigners. And, you know, so the clubs, uh, you know, seem to have their own picture of what the, the professional game, which is the core element, uh, is going to look like. Uh, and, you know, you're talking different language, which to many of us is, is the right language. So how do you bring those two together? How is the governance structure of the game going to enable 
football to make the right decisions, which often uh, are going to be in the best interests of the game in our view, but some owners might not feel commercially that's the case. Yes, it's, it's a good point, Fawz, and I think the, the, the word that you used, which was language, um, in, in my experience dealing with, with, with clubs outside of Australia, is it's important to speak to clubs in their own language. Um, and, 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 and playing younger players in a competition um, makes commercial sense, if it's phrased the right way. Um, the more players you play at a younger age, um, the more ability there is to transfer the player abroad, which brings money back into the club and into the game. So I think it's how, how we frame it. It's the, the data that we, we need to use to, to, um, to, to work with the clubs. And, and I think we can have an exciting product um, where younger players are playing, whether it be the A-League or second-tier competition. Um, I don't necessarily think it will, will be a, a drop of quality. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. Have the A-League clubs spoken to you at all about uh, the development of the National Second Division or have they been quite hands-off throughout this process? No, we haven't had any formal discussions with, with, with the A-League clubs, but it, it, it's an important stakeholder and that's, that's a, a stakeholder that we would need to talk to, um, along with our member federations um, and, and aspiring clubs as well. Um, so I think this is this is all part of where we go going forward. There has to be a consultation process, and the clubs will be part of that. Speaking of consultation, uh, the the starting eleven panel, of course, has generated a lot of discussion, and it's something that Football Federation Australia feels as though they need to develop in order to to go forward and to use and absorb the knowledge and information that um, these panel members and a vast array of uh, you know football community members have developed over the years. To be honest, uh, but what what is going to be different about this panel? And again, I know this is difficult to ask you this question because it predates your role with Football Federation Australia. But how is this panel, James? going to be different to panels that have gone beforehand. For example, there was one established, a football development panel that was established in 2016 uh, with the likes of Ron Smith. You had Stan Lazaridis and former Matilda Kim Schaefer that were on there. And we didn't really see too much out of that. We didn't hear as the footballing populace much information disseminated about their contributions and, and, and how that was used uh, you know, to, to Football Federation Australia's advantage. But what's going to be different about this one and how will the information be used? Yeah, like, like, like you said, Lucy, I can't talk about um, how it's going to be different because I don't have a lot of information on what happened in, in, in the past. Um, what I can do is talk from my experience um, with, with establishing a similar committee um, at FIFA called the Football Stakeholders Committee. Um, it was, it's, it's different and it was a different group of stakeholders. So you had the top executives from clubs, leagues uh, and player associations um, that sat together uh, in, a, in, in a committee at FIFA that had teeth and started making decisions at FIFA around uh, the transfer system. You're seeing uh, reforms at the international level that are happening as a result of decisions going through this committee. You've seen the, the World Cup expand from 32 teams to 48, um, a process which went through this Football Stakeholders Committee. Um, you, you're seeing discussions around a Club World Cup that have gone through the Football Stakeholders Committee um, at FIFA. I'm, I'm not in the business to to set up talk shops. Um, I think if we're gonna set up structures and, and put people in a room uh, and utilize their time, and we have really great people in that 11, um, then I think we need some concrete outcomes um, to, to, to come out of those meetings. Um, so I, I, I can only uh, vouch for my, my, my past and say that um, there, there, there will be meaningful outcomes, there'll be meaningful debate. 
um, it'll be uh, we'll be trying to use their uh, experience and know-how um, from from the playing and coaching days, and mixing that with a lot of the work that the management here has done, all of the data that we've co collected, we'll, we'll be putting that to them and challenging them, challenging them, and uh, trying to uh, identify what the problems are, and then trying to put solutions on the table. And some of which we've already spoken about today. I'm sure they'll come up in these discussions. One of the best things about that panel, I must say, is the, ba the gender balance. And we haven't always seen that in many institutions that have been implementing the game, even in recent times, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, so the game seems to be, uh, you know, starting to get that message. On that, where is the women's game at, James? Uh, can you reassure people, or at least uh, give your view as to the importance of the women's game, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the male? Because many sports now are, are talking about you know, economic viability of competitions and women's sport is right at the heart of that conversation. Uh, and you might want to then just lead into the Women's World Cup bit and give us an update on, on where that's at. Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's it, women's football is a priority. Um, and that's both women in football and women's football. Um, I think if you look at, at the board that I report to, it's 50% men, 50% women. Um, if you look at how some of the operational decisions that we've taken as an organization, um, uh, one being the Matildas, all the Matildas remain employees of FFA, despite us needing to uh, reduce our, our operational expenses. So this has been a priority for the organization. Um, I think the big opportunity for us in the community is with, 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 with our girls and, and with our women. Um, less than a quarter of our participants are women. So for me, that's not only uh, the right thing to do, but just a big opportunity for the game if we can grow that 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 sector of the football community. Um, and then the Women's World Cup. I'm I'm right behind this. Um, I think we have a, a a good chance to to win this. It's not a it's not a win by any means, but we're in the semi final. And uh, like any sporting competition, if you're in the semi final, you've got every chance to to win it. And uh, I think if we did win this, I think it would be a, a really big step forward for the game not just women's football though I think it will have a flow-on effect and actually help the whole the whole growth the commercial growth but also the football growth um, of, of Australian football so women's football is a priority for us. James before we move on to Graham Arnold I, I want to ask you this question because when we both Foz and I spoke to to Jack Riley uh, about a month ago now he sort of reflected on David Gallup's tenure in the role and said that you know he came in and he had wonderful intentions uh, to, to change the, the the structure of the organization to improve the culture etc but I want to ask and I have to it's a question that's sort of been on my mind since you first came into the role is is what are you hoping to bring to the table here James and, and how will we measure your success as Football Federation Australia CEO going forward? I think I'll bring three things, and I'd, I'd like well, I'd like to bring these things. Three things. The, the, the first is bringing people along for a ride, um, talking, debating, uh, putting facts and figures on the table. This is first base, and this is this is important. And I think um, I think even the past few months we've started to hear debate constructive debate uh, around the game and and I think I think this is very healthy um, while we're having this debate I think we've got to put uh, concrete issues on the table and that's something that, that the FFA management is working uh, on at the moment uh, a vision um, a, a case for change different issues in the game that uh, we think will help 
the game moving forward. The trick is not just to put a nice presentation together or, or not, not putting nice words on paper. It's, it's, it's being able to bring together people with different interests uh, and getting them to buy into a vision. Um, this is uh, something that, that I, I did when I was at, at FIFA where we had to bring the clubs and the, the leagues and the players at a global level together to get decisions across the line, such as the, the reform of the transfer system in the Club World Cup. Um, that's something that we're able to do while I was at FIFA. And I'm hoping that this experience uh, I can bring back here uh, and, and, and help the game move forward along these lines. I think that's the first point. Um, the, the, the other two is I think our biggest opportunity is being uh, a local but global organization. We've got this really strong community base, which is fantastic, and we're the strongest club sport in the country. But the other benefit is we have this connection with the international game. And, and I'm not sure if, 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 if we've got that, that balance right in, in the past. Um, I think coming from the football community and having worked outside uh, of Australia for the past 10 years, I'm hoping I'm able to to bring um, this local but global uh, frame of mind back into the Australian game. And, and the third point is it, it, it's bringing football uh, back into the core of the organisation. Uh, I'm like you, Lucy, like Foz, like Arnie on this call. I'm from football as well. Um, uh, and I'm hoping that my presence here will, will really ensure that football is actually what we're discussing, what we're debating. Yes, there's governance issues. Yes, there's commercial issues. But ultimately, we, we have to take decisions and be an organisation that is centred around the game of football. That's certainly something that we would like to see, James, summed up very well there. Um, I want to move on to Graham Arnold now, who's been sitting there very patiently throughout all of this and I've, ask you. I've really, enjoyed, I've really enjoyed listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> this is first class interview, this one. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. I'm, I'm happy to just sit and listen. No, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. And we have to ask oh, you, um, since you've come into the role, you've had to adopt various roles. And more recently, we saw that you adopted another one, uh, which involves uh, you heading up a sort of football development plan uh, and where we're at as a nation and identifying why we're not able to produce the talent that we used to have, say, for example, your generation, Foz's generation and the like. Uh, but can you give us an update on, on sort of where things are at from your perspective in your various roles? Yeah, look, Luce, we've done a, a lot of work um, over the last six weeks just looking at, with real stats, real numbers uh, around the minutes the kids are playing and around, <clears throat> around the issues of why they're not playing or how they're not playing. I think James has uh, yeah, pretty much said all that in, in the second division for the, the second division uh, model to come along. But when you look at, uh, I can just say with Foz, you know, you look at our back at our careers and you reflect on a lot of uh, your own playing days and <clears throat> a lot of it's based around playing minutes and, and the amount of game time you get. So when I look at, for example, I'll give you, a, as, as James said, if, if just one player like an Andrew Redmayne, say Sydney FC plays 20, 25 games in the season, out of 35 leagues we looked at, that's the second lowest amount of match minutes across 35 leagues for a guy who starts every week. So, you know, we, we look at all that stuff and, and we've looked at, you know, what from when the old NSL shut down in 2003 and the NYL started in 2009, the damage that was done in those five or six years where there was no NYL, um, no, <clears throat> no under 20 league for those kids to play. 
And we're still going through that. You know, you, you would probably think, okay, the, the people out there would probably think, oh, that's 2003, 2009. But we're still going through a period there where Aaron Moy, for example, born in 1990, right? He didn't have any NYL or anything to play for that age group for three or four years. And Aaron Moy and Aziz Bayich are the two only 30-year-olds that got through the whole that whole phase. So, you know, then the MYL kicks off and, uh, in 2009 and, and with 18 games. And uh, there was a little bit of a spike back in numbers with the Matty Ryan's age group and that, the 27-year-olds uh, there uh, at that stage. And, and then it's clear, it's clear to James, it's clear to everyone, this eight-game NYL is not working. And uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a matter of the kids getting on the pitch, the kids playing. We've done a study that across those 35 nations that players that, especially under the age of 24, that play three consecutive seasons of more than 25 games, 25 games or more, 65% go on to play for the national teams. Now, ours, uh, when we look at ours, you know, we have very minimal that play 25 games. I think uh, with the under 23 level, we've only got three or we only had three. And uh, so therefore, you know, when you, when you look at those numbers and again, they're real stats on what it takes to, uh, to take a player to another level, we've got to get kids on the park and kids playing. And we're not saying James is not mentioning that those kids 100% have to play in the A-League. I coached in the A-League and I know how it is, but, we just need to give the kids a meaningful opportunity to play 30 to 35 games a year. And wherever that is, that needs to be sorted out. And so all that being said, Graham, which is great. Yeah. So, you, you know, you're getting into, the, getting into the metrics and the detail, which is important. And the game hasn't always done that effectively. So that's fantastic to see. Implementation is, is a separate issue. That yep. is, you know, you can have great research, great data and so on. Where is the game placed or how do you see the right um, methods, the right decisions, the right regulations being put in place, um, particularly with the professional competition? Yeah, look, and the, the ideal scenario would be, uh, as James said at, at this moment, would be an A-league competition of 30 rounds, 33 rounds, because next year there's 12 teams. So, you know, we can't have two and a half rounds we need three rounds so, so 33 games and to replicate that with an NYL that does exactly the same at this moment in time and and I believe the age group should go from 20 up to 23 because you know it's it's you're a late developer Foz as a footballer so was I and in in this current state that if a kid is 20 and three weeks too old and he's three weeks too old for an under 20 position that he's basically out of the game and his career is over. So it's, it's more about raising maybe that age group a little bit, um, giving those kids an extra couple of years to develop more. And, and on the physicality side, you know, we all talk about tactics and we talk about technique. Yep, that's great. And, but I know that I know and you know that the more games you played <clears throat> as, you, as you got older, that's how you get that physical great physique because it's used to playing 30 games a season. So we... You know, at this moment, you know, we're using 27 weeks of the year 
out of 52. And in my view, that's nowhere near enough. And when you look at the, the leagues around the world and the, the, the top leagues in Asia, you know, they're, talking, they're, they're playing 40 to 42 weeks of the year. And, you know, and, and with us, we're, we're not getting that, that, that amount of time on the pitch. And the boys and the kids especially, they, they need that. The more you practice your trade, the better you get. Um, we're going to take this opportunity to have a quick break before we pick it up with you again, Arnie, and say thank you very much uh, to you, James, for your time. Uh, it was a great pleasure having you for as long as we did, and we're so grateful for you sacrificing so much of that time. We wish you all the very best in your role. I know that you've got a lot on your shoulders, and just know that we are supporting you. We do want a, a greater and, and a more holistic football plan when it comes to what our future looks like going forward, and we hope that it's a great success for everyone involved, including yourself. Thank you, Lucy, and thanks for inviting me onto the show. Thank you too, Foz, and, and also always good to, to speak with football people and, of course, Arnie, um, national team Absolutely. coach. Thanks for your time, James. All the best. Um, Arnie, I want to be able to sort of pick that up again with you now um, and, and, and from your understanding sort of where we are as a footballing nation, I mean, you've identified there are a lot of issues there with youth development and why we're seeing so many of the issues come up now is because we weren't able to correct them in years gone by. But what needs to be addressed in the short term future right now, do you feel? Yeah, well, especially with this coronavirus, it's, it's, uh, it's about what's what can happen straight after. And, and, and for me, <clears throat> probably that reserve grade, we can't wait three years for a reserve grade league. You know, I right. think at this moment, we really have to look around the country and, and the way it is at this moment is the MPL one is our second division right around the country. And we have to raise the standards in that, in the MPL one and <clears throat> give the players the opportunity to play. And, and if, even if it is a restructure of the league or whatever it is, but, you know, that is really our second division. And, you know, you look at eight games for the MYL, and as I said, it's nowhere near enough that the kids play. Is that a competition or is that a tournament? Well, I'd rather say it's a tournament uh, with only eight games. So MPL land is, is the land that the, that the kids need to develop in and, and players need to develop in and, and raise and help raise the standards of the MPL right across the whole country because, as James touched on, Australia is a big country. And, and the landscape of the, of the country is so, so enormous, it's very hard to, you know, with the travel and the costing. So we have to f find another way. And for me, the best way of that is MPL1 that's already been there for years and is doing a great job. And, you know, helping them um, raise the standards to create uh, great players. What do you think about the role of member federations? I mean, I'd love to ask everybody on this because everybody, it seems, has differing views. James has said he doesn't think that they should be abolished. Where do you sit on that, Arnie? Now, look, I've, since I've been doing this job for the last six weeks, I've had a, a number of chats with them and, and that it's, for me, it's just about them getting, all of us getting together and working together as one for the good of the kids. You know, uh, every, every person who makes, uh, who has a role to make, big football decisions needs to make those decisions as though they're making the decisions for their sons and their daughters because it is it, it can have an effect and, and such a big effect on a player's career all those decisions so you know it's the state feds for years have done a great job it's just about getting them all together and everyone getting in line and working together and really you know james is doing a great job but you know he needs help 
we all need to help James Johnson as well. He can't do this on his own. And, you know, if, and the people that can help him are the state feds and, and, and the running of the game and the governance and, and making sure that uh, we're there to support him for what, what he needs. Because I do believe that uh, we finally got that football person in as a CEO. And he does talk a lot of good stuff around football. And he has the right intentions to help our game. And uh, so, in in relation to this, you know, youth development, which has one it's been one of the hot topics for yeah. since when since you and I were born, Arnie. <laughs> and you know, it's been, so it's been you know, and this is the frustration. You know, it's been going around. I mean, how many reviews have we had into this? I mean, how many committees have we had, and so on? So you're actually in a really important position now because you've got the the, the most uh, vast experience across all levels of the game over an extended period of time. So you've seen all of the ups and downs. You've, you've played at, at many different levels or coached them or, or whatever it is, or you know mm. someone there. Uh, so what are the, if you like, aside from, you know, the, so the young players aren't playing there. But then when we come to, you know, the production of players, where are we at? We have had these academies in the A-League clubs uh, for quite some time now. Mm. Um, you know, what's that looking like? What are you seeing as the Oliroo coach coming through? And finally... Uh, one of the hot topics, of course, is private academy system in the country. And we talked with James about rising cost to play. So where is that picture at? Yeah, Foz, look, that's a great question because, you know, I was really disappointed when Rob, when Rob Sherman left because I had a great relationship with Rob and I really, I really thought his ideas were fantastic. And, uh, you know, and, and for the way when he left was, you know, we never foresaw this this opportunity uh, with the coronavirus to really, you know, buckle down and, and look into the game. Look, I'll be honest, Foz, the reason I, I uh, you know, I've done or, and looking at all this stuff is because the job that I took with the Olympic team. Why did I take the Olympic team? Well, <clears throat> it was more around, you know, from what I saw with the Socceroos, yeah, the retirements, I wanted to see what depth we had and where the players were coming from. And I'll be honest with you, I was, that's why I, I'm, in this position doing this job and looking at all, all the, the issues at the moment and why. Why are the players not going to? Why does it, uh, what happens when we can, the under-17s can go to a World Cup, come 16th or get to the last 16, come home, right, what are the players doing? Where are they playing? Okay, so they're the type of things I'm looking at to, uh, to see what these kids are in to, to keep them going. And we've talked for years about the age group between 17 and 21, 22, and, and, and what happens to the players. So with the Olympic team, it, was a, it really opened my eyes. And I had, in that group, I had six players born in 2000. So it was a very young team. It was the under 20 players, not under 23s. And then when you look across the A-League, uh, there was only 20, 22 players to choose from in the whole country, in the top league. And that's when... That's when you start thinking, okay, where am I going to get these players from? So it's, you know, it's something that the new TD, that when he does come in, that is so crucial, so important. The new TD comes in. And I do believe it needs to be an Australian because he understands the ways and, and putting all those things in place for both for the men and for the women. Because, you know, when you look at all the players, the, the, the age groups, and the ones that are coming through or getting through to the Socceroos, it's minimal. You know, I debuted a, a Harry Sutter. Well, I found him from the UK. 
and with a, a, a grandmother with a, an Australian passport. What kids are actually coming through the A-League to get into the national team? People have said to me, oh, Arnie, it's great to see you giving young kids go, oh, hang on, Jimmy Jago's 27. What I've actually done is given inexperienced national team players an experience of playing for the, for the Socceroos. So for me, I, I took the Olympic team to see what was next, to see what we could filter through uh, into, um, into the Socceroos. You know as well as anyone for us that, that, you know, preparation is a key with the national teams. The national team, FFA, I feel and felt that, you know, we weren't doing the right thing in preparation for the junior national teams. Most of those nations, all these top nations in Asia, they prepare for one year. They, they would have 20 games against other nations. And we have two, two games, 10 days preparation, and then off you go. And, and so we're, we're cutting short, even with FFA, the preparation and those great experiences of playing against national teams. And so they're all things that uh, James is on top of. I've done the reports. I've done it to uh, given him that type of information for those type of decisions further down the track to help those kids. I want to ask you, Arnie, before we look to wrap up shortly, your sentiments around World Cup qualification and, and where we sit on that. Obviously, it's been a challenge, as you've said already, to try and identify talent coming through um, to build this team going forward. But um, what, what are some of the issues that you feel like you've raised with Football Federation Australia about the support that you'll need going forward to ensure that we qualify for 2022? Yeah, look, I think uh, we're in... in very good, uh, you know, as I said, when I first took over, I, I could see the first part of it being a transition because of the retirement of, of players. And, you know, I felt that probably over that, t that period of time that we only trusted 12 or 13 players. We used the same players at the, at the World Cup and it was about creating more depth. What was underneath? Because it is quite strenuous, all the travel the boys have to do, you know, backwards and forwards and, and, and with the qualification process. I feel we're in a great state today. <clears throat> we sit uh, as only one of three nations in Asia that's undefeated in our World Cup qualifying uh, pathway so far. Yes, it's been unexpected with this coronavirus, uh, uh, the disruption has been for the World Cup qualifiers, but what's great is moving forward that I have looked at the depth, have created depth, that moving forward now that uh, with a busy program in place that the players all know and feel uh, you know, what they need to do to get on the pitch and, and perform in a great way. So, you know, when, when the A-League comes back, it'll be great to see football again back in this country and seeing the boys back on the, back on the pitch. But, uh, look, it's, a, it's, a, it's been an eye-opener uh, again uh, doing the national team and it's been great. I've enjoyed every minute and I am enjoying every minute of it. And all I want to do is try and help the kids, help the, the players perform at a great level help the kids come through, give the kids great lives and, uh, you know, and have a great experience with them on that journey. And just on those teams, and particularly the young ones, uh, Arnie, um, for the coaches listening, and there will be plenty, um, can you talk to us then about, you know, where Australian coaching is at right now? You know, you see them all. You know, you're, you're probably with you, uh, Ange, maybe Joe Montemuro, you know, uh, yeah, yep. Muskie, yep. yep. Um, and Popper and some, but even there, yep. maybe a little bit younger. You know, you guys are kind of the elders now. Talk, talk to us about where that's at. Licenses, cost yep. of licenses, 
okay, from coaching perspective. And then finally, also the alignment between the national teams in terms of, the, in terms of your tactical play. Yeah. You know, are you producing those players to step straight in and play the same way? And if so, what is it? Yep, the communication falls with uh, Trevor Morgan, Gary Van Egmont on the men's side and myself below with uh, doing both teams. Is the culture very, very similar. Uh, the style is all about the principles, when to press, how to press, how to defend, how to build up, how to break the lines, balls uh, forward, runs in behind. Uh, so the principles are all the same. Uh, the system, you know, you have to be flexible. Whoever you're playing against, it may need to change. I change normally. I change the system three times in a game uh, yeah. to win the game, uh, and having the players uh, to understand that. On the coaching side of it, I really think we have got some great coaches, fellas. Um, you know, you look across the A League, <clears throat> the Australian coaches are doing very, very well. You got Mark Rudin, Tony Popovich, Steve Corica, doing great. Buffy Tallow, fantastic at, at Wellington. Paul Ocon. You know, so we've got coaches, and mm. you know. The foreign coaches are not being critical against them, but I do feel that a lot of them have struggled with the salary cap and understanding the Australian way. And when you look at the A-League, over the 15 years, there's only been three foreign coaches that have ever won the A-League, Lebarski, Levitska and Amor. And the rest have been Australian. And I just feel that Australian coaches potentially, um, they trust Australian kids more as well. Because mm. they know what they've been brought up through and they know how Australian kid wants to be coached. So, you know, I think we're on a good pathway with that. Ange is doing, uh, obviously, done, doing great in Japan and, and putting the name of Australian coaches out there. Muskie now getting a job in Belgium is fantastic for, for the brand of coaching. So, Go you know, the women's. Yep, with the women's at Arsenal, fantastic. So, you know, we, we you know, I, I sat once Foz with Jose Mourinho and he asked me about the salary cap and how it works. I told him, he said, oh, I couldn't do that. You know, and because he relies on the money uh, to buy the top players, where yeah. part of coaching here in, in the in Australia and the A League is about developing and, yes, and exactly. developing the kids yep. or the players and and tactically, technically, and that's part of their, our role. So I think coaching's on on a very good pathway here, and we've got some very good coaches, and there's some good coaches coming through the MPL. One, mm -hmm. you know, I've been uh, I get out, believe it or not, I do get out and watch some of those MPL one games. It's great to see uh, Big Spider coaching at Sydney United, mm, um, yes. and, he's, and he's doing very well. So, you know, I just think that you know sometimes we're a little bit too negative about <clears throat> about things, and there is a lot of good positive things that are happening, and may it continue. Yeah, I remember saying to the second to last Eric Abrams that one of the uh, advantages Australian coaches have is that actually our players aren't as well developed. Yep. That's a technical issue for the technical director. But because yep. they're not as well developed tactically, then the coaches at the highest level who've worked it out are those who are able to actually improve players at the same time as yep. being able to be competitive. And that's yep. a reasonably rare skill that coaches from only a few kind of countries go through the same kind of process of thinking about how to improve people, even at, even at the... The senior level. Yeah, and that's exactly right, Foz. You know, and maybe that, and that's what I'm talking about with the maybe raising that age group to under 23, because it takes us that little bit longer to learn and to adapt to those type of things that you were talking about. But uh, you know, I, I think I truly believe, mate, that uh, we've got kids that really, really want to play and want to learn. And when you do talk to the foreign coaches that are in the A League, they all they all comment about 
the work ethic and 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 the commitment and the desire these kids have got to become great pro professional footballers. So, Arnie, what are the chances of us actually implementing all of these changes? Because it's all well and good for us to sit here and say, well, we're well-intentioned, we need to see these things happen in Australian football, and clearly there is a unanimous consensus amongst the football community that we need to change. Things need to improve going forward. But the realities of putting these things in place, I mean, can we really expect to see them eventuate? It has to, Lucy. It has to. Because we all love Johnny Warren. And... You know, he's, he's, unfortunately, he's been, you know, he died in 2003, but we're, we're still sitting here probably talking the same talk he would be talking if he was here today. And, it's, you know, we've got to make that change. You know, we, we, you know, we have such great potential, but it's time that it's gone from potential to quality. And, and, you know, so therefore, you know, everyone just needs to get together and for the good of the game of football and for the good of, the, the, to give kids a great life because football does, Fozio, does give you a great life yeah. and as a player and, and give you, uh, gives you great opportunities in life. And that's what, that's, they're the type of decisions we need to base our decisions on is helping those kids have great lives. How frustrated are you personally and professionally from the situation that we're in at the moment with the state of the game? Because I remember post the 2006 World Cup, my understanding was that you had issued a warning to basically say, we need to start preparing for the next phase of the golden generation now. And if we don't, we're going to be in a dire situation. But the fact that, like you said, we continue to have the same conversations again and again, how much does yeah. it frustrate you now from all of your various roles within the national teams over the years to being the head coach now? Yeah, look, Lucy, I think, uh, again, I've changed enormously as a person with, and you learn, learn by your mistakes. And, and, you know, for me, for a long time as a coach, it was about me, me being successful and, and my, my career where it's nearly now the last thing I think of. And it's been like that for the last few years, even when I was at Sydney. It's about helping the kids and about helping the players um, become great players and, and getting them the best out of people. Uh, on and off the field. First for me is that the person is the most important thing, then the player, not the player, then the person. So, you know, I sat with Goose Hiddink at a table uh, straight after the World Cup and, and he said to Frank Lowy and, and John O'Neill and John Bolpe, he said straight away, you guys need to start thinking about developing the next generation because these boys that we had here, 75%, uh, he said, will be lucky to get through to South Africa in 2010. And uh, <clears throat> there was no NYL for five years, you know, and I, I coached an Olympic team in 2007 um, that, you know, the kids had three minutes on the pitch. I had five players without a club <laughs> at the Olympics. So, you know, you start reflecting on all that type of stuff and you, you, just want, you just want what's right and what's good for the kids to be given an opportunity because, you know, there's a lot of decisions that are there, that are made, that, that's really not, hasn't got the, the, the best interest at heart for the kids. Before we let you go, how will you measure your success? Once you come to your time up with the Socceroos, whenever that may be, what will you look back on and define as, as a successful stint with this team? With the Socceroos? Um, obviously making the World Cup, um, but, uh, you know, 
uh, not developing, but you know, pushing, making that pool of players bigger and better, and going to the World Cup and and winning games. You know, we've won two World Cups ever, two World Cup games ever, one in two thousand six, one in two thousand and ten, and and to go to to Qatar and and not just turn up for you know just for the sake of being there, but turning uh, going to the World Cup and and expecting to go out and win every game, and that's how I, how I've always coached, but. I get a lot of <clears throat> a lot of joy by sitting back and watching Matty Ryan and you know the boys I had up at the Central Coast Mariners, the young boys, you know, uh, playing and 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 having a an effect on people's lives. I think that's uh, the way I'll, I'll gauge my career on how many you know players that I help develop or help help on a journey in in their life to become great footballers. Well, Arnie, you've certainly done that historically, and we hope to see you continue to do that. It's been a real pleasure to have you join us today. We really appreciate your time. Foz, to you Thank always, you. fabulous uh, chat colleague with James Johnson, who's since left us, but um, a really important series of discussions going on in Australian football right now, and to have you both at the forefront is really important, and we hope that we can continue to drive the game forward uh, as we navigate yeah. this incredibly challenging period. Keep supporting and keep believing. and. Uh... We can do it. We can do it. Let's hope so. Thanks, Foz. Thanks, Arnie. Okay.